Before we go into the message for this morning and the reading of the scripture, let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we need wisdom as, as the verses in our fighter verses this morning remind us, if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask you. And so we lack wisdom. Uh, we need wisdom from you. We need the wisdom to rightly hear and rightly explain and rightly proclaim your word. And I pray even this morning, Father, that uh, the words of my mouth uh, the things that I share would be pleasing in your sight, would be true to your word. Um, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only your Holy Spirit can do to apply the word in each individual's heart and life and cause them then to be better equipped to serve you. And I pray the same for myself. And we pray in the matchless name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, we will be looking uh, primarily at Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read that in a moment. But I want to kind of give you a sense as to the reason that I uh, selected this particular sermon uh, to preach. It's actually a combination of some things that I've been teaching the pastors and their wives in India. I did a series on making decisions uh, based on what God's will is, what God wants us to do. And then we are currently working through a series on the book of Judges. Um, and so there are elements of both of those in this morning's message. Uh, but the, the, the goal of this message, or the title of this message, is decision, Decisions Informed by Eternity and Love. And so I'd like to read Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I'd like for you to particularly note that in verse 8, Paul says, everything's a loss. I count everything a loss with the exception of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so today, I'd like to share with you some of the things that God has impressed upon me about what it means to know Christ. For most of life's decisions, um, well, let's, yes, could you go to the next slide there, please? Thank you. So the theme or the main idea today is that we should be making decisions that are informed by eternity and are relationship-focused. And so if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Your decisions should be 
made with an understanding that this is not all there is. If you're making decisions that way, you're, you're very short-sighted. You're making probably foolish decisions if you think this is all there is. And the other aspect of decision-making involves having relationship. And we're going to explore that a little bit more this morning. On the next slide, um, there are some gaps in the way that we make decisions. For most of life's decisions, um, and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. For most of life's de decisions, I often make them without thinking, especially before I was a believer. Um, and, and the thinking that I had wasn't really always very biblical. It wasn't very focused on the things that God said were important. And we often make decisions based on, well, I've always done it this way, or it seems right, or um, we, we pick what we think might make us happy, even if it's just temporary in our decision-making process. But we've been misinformed, we've been misled, or we've missed the long-term implications of our decisions if we think those ways. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, there is a very, very sad verse, and it's actually repeated again in Judges uh, chapter 21. The phrase is this, in those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this, making decisions based on what they could see, was catastrophic. It caused them to make terrible decisions. The, the what good looks to me decision-making leads to enslavement. It leads to pain. It leads to groaning. It leads to disappointment. It will not satisfy. The things that I see often are colored by things that aren't right, uh, that are temptations from Satan. And because of these types of decisions in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 23, God summarizes the entire book of Judges. You don't have to read the whole book of Judges to know the summary of the book of Judges. Later on, read Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 23. Basically, it's a repeat of a cycle. They plead with God to, to save them. And then they are corrupted by the things that are part of the culture there, the gods of the Philistines and the Amorites and everyone else that's got their own God. And then they go into enslavement and distress. And then they call out to the Lord. And the Lord, in His gracious mercy, answers by providing a judge. And they are rescued and they... Uh, receive a, a period of peace, which is short-lived because they go back and do it all over again. And there's two huge gaps in their doing things right in their own eyes, and one of them has to do with the time element. Their own vision is short-sighted. They're thinking about today. They're thinking about next week. They're thinking about this year, and that's it. They're, they're looking for an, a, a an answer that satisfies today with no thought as to whether or not this will really, truly satisfy in eternity uh, thinking. The second gap in their thinking is the relationship element. They did not appreciate the relationship with the, with the God of Israel. They did not appreciate the intimate relationship that he wanted to have with them, that God wants to have with you and I as well. 
They did not appreciate that. And that's an important element that was missing in seeing and doing what was right in their own eyes. God actually wanted to be their king. There was no king in Israel, but actually there was. God was their king, and they weren't listening to him or following him. During Joshua's life, and Joshua lived 110 years, the people of his generation knew the Lord, served the Lord, and you'll remember at the end of Joshua, Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the people said, yes, amen, preach it, brother Joshua, we're going to follow the Lord too. And Joshua warned them that if they didn't, that that would be dire. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 7, it says, and, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. That's good news. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So all of Joshua's peers, they served the Lord. Who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But then something tragic happens. In verse 10 it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And Proverbs 16.25 sums this up very, very succinctly. It says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death way to death. Now, I want us to explore and understand the word know when it talks about know the Lord. This is not um, the way that maybe we think about the word know when we say it in the English language. To know a language, you have to understand the people who are using the language. So, uh, the word snow means something in our language. But snow is not all that terribly important to us. I mean, yes, we get a certain measure of it. I enjoy blowing it around and, and shoveling it. But when we use the word snow, if we want to qualify it, then we have to add an adjective to make sure people understand what kind of snow we're talking about. So we might say, well, the snow was light and fluffy, or it's blinding snow, or it's powdery snow, or it's heavy, wet snow, or it's deep snow. You see, we. We don't have words that are specific because we don't care that much about snow. At least I don't care that much about snow, and our language apparently doesn't either. However, some languages, snow is like really, really, you know, on the top 10 things of importance. And so the Eskimos have unique words for different kinds of snow. They don't have to put adjectives in front of their word for snow. They've got words for it, so they have a word for fine snow. They have a word for snow on the ground. We would have to say snow on the ground. They have a word for soft, deep snow. They have a word for fresh snow. They have a word that's snow that's good for driving a sled. That must be nice to have a word that's a little shorter for handling the, the sled driving snow. And they even have a word for snowbank, and we have to say snowbank. In Siberia, the people there, have 40 terms for snow. And so you see, because it's important in their culture, the word has significant uh, variations to help them describe exactly what they're talking about. And if you know somebody, um, then you pick things that they appreciate. This, this year, for Christmas, my daughter bought, uh, put together a gift for me, and it's based on the fact that she knows me. And so everything that was part of that gift is the result of her recognizing 
who I am, what I appreciate, what I could use. And uh, every time I see it, it brings joy to me because it, it tells me that she was thinking about how she knows me. And in the nation of Israel, to know meant to have an intimate relationship. It wasn't just, oh yeah, I know about that God Jehovah. You know, and he, yeah, I, I have this vague recollection that grandpa told me about getting us across the, the Red Sea in a miraculous way. It wasn't, it wasn't just a history lesson. When they used the word know, and when, when it says that these people did not know the Lord or the works that he'd done, that meant they didn't have a relationship with him anymore. So the Israelites knew the facts about God. They, they, it wasn't like they'd kind of forgotten all of history, but they had forgotten their relationship with God. So what does it mean to, to know? Next slide. It means to stay close. It means to stay close. And Judges 2.12 paints the picture, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. So they made a conscious decision to say, we're done with this God. We're not going to have a relationship with this God. And even if it wasn't a conscious decision, that's in effect what they did. They gave up the in, in, intimate relationship with the God of Israel. And to know also means to follow the good shepherd. And Jesus says something very interesting when he talks about, I am the good shepherd in John 10 verses 14 and 15. Don't miss this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. You should take comfort in that. He knows you. This is not just, he knows Marsha Booth. You know, he, he knows what Marsha Booth looks like. He knows the sound of Marsha Booth's voice. No, 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 no. He knows Martha Booth. Marsha Booth. <laughs> and notice what follows. I know my own and I, my own know me. So Jesus says, it's not just that I intimately know Rob Broadhead, but Rob Broadhead will intimately know me. There will be relationship with me. And he says, this is deep, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, Jesus says, the relationship that the Father desires to have with you, this knowing relationship, this is a deep, lasting, uh, intimate relationship. So our decisions and affections should be informed by eternity. Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17, uh, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says that he wants us to know the Father. That's how he prays for those that would come and seek him, that would follow him. And that's why in Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to have fellowship with him. I want to have an intimate relationship with God. So Jesus said this. He lifted up his eyes to heaven in John chapter 17 and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And now this is eternal life, okay? Don't miss this. Eternal life isn't just, I get to go to heaven. 
That's good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, just the glimmers from the Scripture caused me to say, yes, that's, that's a place I'd like to be. But Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may have an intimate relationship with you. A relationship that was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus came to seek and to save and to give his life as a ransom for many. That we might know the true God and, he says, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus' prayer, he starts his prayer by saying, Father, I want them to know you. I want them to have an intimate relationship with you. And Father, I want that relationship to be just like the relationship you and I have. Appreciate that. Understand that knowing God is more than just facts. Eternal life is knowing the only true God and His undeserved mercy and love towards us. Knowing the one God sent, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, uh, uh, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4 says this, verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He came to establish relationship. John 1, 12 through 13, uh, John also talks about experiencing or knowing the Father as a father-child relationship with God. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. God. We get adopted. We get the Father's name. We get to be part of the Father's family, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, God did the work for you to establish the relationship. You just have to accept that by faith and come to Him and receive that good gift that He's given you that you might have a relationship from God or with God. I appreciate what Paul uh, said, and it helps us in our thinking, Paul went from religion, he was like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, he was 15 when it came to religion. This guy was well studied, he knew the scriptures, um, he was zealous for Judaism, for his faith. But he didn't have a relationship. And how do I know that? Because in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when Jesus presents himself, Paul says to Jesus, Who are you, Lord? No relationship. Doesn't know this man, Jesus. Actually saw Jesus as the enemy, as somebody to fight against. He knew about Jesus. He knew the storyline. He knew about the followers. He knew what the followers were saying. He had been hunting down and killing them. He knew intimately about what they believed. And Jesus gen gently says to him, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In other words, Jesus is saying, not only don't we have a relationship, but it's, it's being evidenced in the way you're treating my children. No relationship. Jesus was saying, Saul, you don't have an intimate relationship with me and your actions speak louder than any intellectual, theological truth you may know. 
And the good news is that by the power of God working in his life and through the Holy Spirit, he was transformed. And he went to this guy that, that said, what did he say? I account everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be like him in his death. I want to make a difference in the lives of people. To the, to the Jew, I want to be a Jew. To the Gentile, I want to be a Gentile. I want to go where God sends me to preach the word. That's instructive. That's the kind of knowing that God would like to have with us, an intimate relationship. Knowing Jesus as Lord has surpassing worth. Now, surpassing um, means better than, more than, greater than, exceeds. We, we recently bought a new uh, vehicle. Brand is Ford. That, that doesn't really matter. Uh, when I test drove it, I thought, this is nice. It's actually, it's actually the same color as the one we used to have, so if you look at it out in the parking lot, you wouldn't know that we have a new car. But it, it surpasses and exceeds my expectations. And let me just give you two examples. One, I always have cold hands. But when I get into this car and I grab the steering wheel, it's heated. You know, I, sometimes I'm a one-handed driver. Not anymore. I'm a two-handed driver now. This, this exceeds. It surpasses my expectations. Not only that, but if I turn on cruise control, I, I, I like cruise control. It helps to warn me before Cindy does that I'm not doing the speed limit. But it surpasses my expectations because depending on how I turn on cruise control, it will literally stay in the lane. I can feel it if, and I am holding the steering wheel, okay? I'm not letting go of the steering wheel. But I can feel the car adjusting for me to keep me in the center of the lane. And I think Cindy appreciates that as well. Although most of the time I don't turn that on because it's annoying for the car to be trying to drive. But what's even better, it surpasses every expectation, is if it senses a car up ahead, it taps the brakes for me and slows the car down so that the distance between me and the other car based on my speed doesn't cause me to crash into the back end of another car. Now, I'm still obligated to drive watching for traffic, okay? But it still surpasses my expectations. And, and Paul is saying in, in the letter to the Philippians, they're surpassing worth in knowing Jesus. They're surpassing worth in having a relationship with him. So don't miss that. Don't miss the surpassing worth of having a relationship with Jesus. So here's some application. Believe that he is who he said he is and receive him. And that's not just, okay, I, I get you're the Savior. Um, I, I get that you died, uh, that you took sin on yourself, and you're perfectly holy, and you rose again that I might have eternal life, and you're preparing a place for me, sign me up. It's more than that. It's now, I want to be close to him. I want to know him. I want to have an intimate relationship with him. I want to know what interests my Savior. Because his interests, like my daughter displaying it with the gift she gave me, 
His interests become my interests. His goals become my goals. His use of my resources, my time, and our dollars, what's his? They're his, actually. They're all his. I just need now to recognize it and think accordingly. So believe this. He's your deliverer. He's your way, your truth, your life. He's your good shepherd. He's the bread of life. Accept this intimate relationship with him. Respond. And then desire like Paul to count everything else as rubbish to get to know him. Nothing else really matters. Uh, if With that frame of mind, I can give up uh, lots of things that really don't matter. I can make choices entirely differently than I did when I was a teenager. My teenager choices, they were awful. Even after I became a believer, I was still... Let's see how we can make Wayne happy. But now, I want to pursue, like Paul, an intimate relationship with my Savior. On the next slide, eternity comes into focus with an intimate relationship. So, Paul to the church in Colossae says this in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, chapter 3, 1 through 3. If any of you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so the thing that happens, the thing that changes when I have an intimate relationship is my view of things. I'm not doing what's right in my own eyes anymore. I'm thinking about things from an eternal, a relationship perspective, an intimate relationship perspective. And that changes everything. That changes every decision, or, or should, or could potentially change every decision. And Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God, draw near to God means have a relationship with God, have an intimate understanding of God. You draw near to someone to have close understanding with them. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so, actually, that's why Paul says, I'm willing to give up everything because he gets it. He gets it. Anything that he's given up is junk. It's rubbish. And that's what he calls it compared to the surpassing wonder of knowing Christ and knowing that he rewards those who seek him, who desire to have that relationship with him. That's amazing and wonderful. So there's some eternity application here. The things I have are no longer mine. And I don't need to hold on to them. And I don't need to grab for more. I need to be a good steward of what God has given me and think eternity when it comes to things. And my view of relationships is no longer temporary because relationships are eternal. Yes, I had a good relationship with my mother and my father, and, and they're gone now. But praise be to God, they had a relationship with the Lord and Savior, and so that relationship, I get to see them again. Uh, in the next week, in fact, perhaps this week, I'm going to be meeting with a man who came to me because... He wants investment advice. He's a young man. He wants to learn how to invest his money for retirement. 
And I said, I'd love to help you. But I'm going to make it very clear in the very first lesson that if I help him with this, and I don't help him with things that are eternal, then I've done him a huge disservice. Because what is eternal matters. And I don't want him to just have a relationship with me for a couple of days. I want him to be a brother in Christ. I want him to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Savior. I want him to come to Jesus and have an intimate relationship. That's what matters. So things and relationships matter from an eternal perspective. I've got some images on the next slide. You can't read this, and it's okay. I mean, if, if you want, I can email these images to you. These are letters from 1973. I'm a pack rat. I save everything. Um, Cindy is not quite as bad as I am, but she saves a lot of stuff too. The very first letter that she sent me when I was stationed in Hawaii is the one on the left that says Garfield Baptist Church on it. It's the church letterhead. They passed out stationery and told, asked people to write to the servicemen. And I was in the Navy, and so she did. And she shared some things to me in her very first letter so that I might know her. And this is what she told me. She told me she had been witnessing to and leading friends to Christ. She told me that she was leading in Awana and had seen five of her sixth grade girls come to faith in Christ. She included a Bible reading plan in her letter to me. It tells me about where her heart was. In other words, she told me that what was important to her by what she did for others and what she was doing for her Savior. That's how she communicated. In my first letter to Cindy, I told her I wasn't in California because she assumed, based on the fact that the address was FPO San Francisco, that I was in San Francisco. So I had a little fun explaining to her that FPO means fleet post office, and everybody that's in the service in the Navy west of San Francisco or San Francisco has the same address, fleet post office, San Francisco. But I also told her some of my interests. They weren't anywhere near as uh, high and upstanding as hers, her list. I told her I liked stamp and coin collecting, swimming, fishing, body surfing, snorkeling, music, books, poetry, math, ping pong, and the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't know why I said the Milwaukee Bucks. I, ha I, have, I have zero interest in the Milwaukee Bucks. But back then, I must have had some interest to include that in here. And here's what she did. Okay, so that's her first letter. That's the page where I tell her about all the things I'm interested in. And there's a little excerpt from hers. Um, and here's what she says to me. She says, I enjoy fishing. I would like to do that again. You know what she did? She said, what you like, I want to like. What's important to you, I want that to be important to me so that perhaps we have something in common. That's wanting to get to know somebody. That's establishing more of a relationship. 
And if we have a relationship with Jesus and with the Father, then we need to have a growing understanding of what it is that pleases Him. That's why I read the Word every day, to understand better what pleases Him and what's important to Him and what grieves Him. What's most interesting to me is when Jesus met Peter after the resurrection and said to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, well, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, yes Lord, I, I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then Peter gets asked again, Peter, do you love me? Do you have an intimate relationship with me? Do you really want to be like me? Do you want to be with me? And Peter said, you know all things, Lord. Yeah, I, I love you. And Jesus, the third time, after asking the question and Peter answering in the affirmative, probably a little bit grieved, that Jesus had to say, do you really want to have an intimate relationship with me? Do you really want to love me? Jesus says, feed my sheep. And you know what Peter did? All through the book of Acts, he couldn't stop doing that because that was an intimate relationship with the Savior that he wanted to foster. To be like his Savior, to care about people, to think eternity about things. In fact, when, when the man that was begging asked for silver and gold, he said, I don't have that stuff, but what I have, I'm going to give you. Rise up and walk. And that introduced him to the power of the Savior, the risen Savior. But you might ask, well, how do I know what his will is? How can I know what an intimate relationship is? We're going to go through these fairly quickly. But if you have questions, email me or text me, and I'll try to fill in the game. How does God guide us? Uh, next slide. How does, he, how does he guide us? Is it a guessing game? The answer is no. You don't have to wonder what God's will is. It's not hard to find it. It's actually in here. It's not a guessing game. And it's not an inner voice or dream. Actually, if I had to base my spiritual walk on my dreams, my life would be nonsense. My dreams, the few that I remember, are craziness. So that's not how we can come to know Christ. No, I'm not saying that he doesn't for some individuals that sometimes use dreams and visions. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that's not where we need to go for our primary source for information, to know the Savior. We already have what we need. We need wisdom. We need truth. And those are both found in God's Word. So we can get the truth from God's Word, and then, as James rightly reminds us, if we lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. And that's part of having an intimate relationship, knowing that I can go to the Father and say, Father, I'm not sure what to do here. What should I do? And he's going to provide direction, not an audible voice, but oftentimes perhaps some other brother or sister in Christ will give me some direction or help. What types of decisions do we face? Well, there are three primary types of decisions that we face. One, the first one are decisions of righteousness. Decisions of righteousness. These are pretty, uh, what shall I say, obvious? This is obedience. This is 
doing what God has said we should do and not doing what God has said we shouldn't do. So if we want to have an int intimate relationship with him, it says multiple times in the scriptures, here's the one who loves me. He obeys my commandments. And here's my commandment to you, he says. Love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. So that filters out a lot of stuff pretty quickly for all of us. Uh, God doesn't give us a guessing game. God doesn't give us dreams and visions. God gives us his word. And this is like those letters that I was showing you. This is his love letter to us. And he's preserved it for us over thousands of years. That's how important his love letter is, that he wants us to know him. There are then, in addition to decisions of righteousness, that is obedience, there are decisions of judgment. And these have to do with motivation. Sometimes there are what appear to be two equally good courses of action, maybe three, maybe four. They're all, none of them are immoral, none of them are unholy, they're just different. But then the question becomes, why do I choose one over the other? What is my motivation? What's driving me to do that? Is it for my glory, or is it for the glory of God? Is it for my own benefit, or is it to enhance the relationship that I have with my Savior and with others in this world? That can be very helpful. If I stop and think, okay, if it's not expressly prohibited or commanded, what's my motivation in doing this? Those are decisions of judgment. And then there's another category that's called the decisions of the trivial, of the mundane. In other words, does it really make all that much difference what I eat for lunch? I mean, does God, God doesn't specify the menu for lunch. Now, he wants me to treat my body well. It's a gift from him, and he doesn't want me to mess it up with bad eating. But in the big scheme of things, there are a lot of things we could consider trivial. But maybe they shouldn't be. My mom clipped coupons. She was the master of clipping coupons. She clipped coupons for every grocery store from the Sunday paper, and then she went on a mission to buy groceries at multiple grocery stores so she could use her coupons to save money. Now that's mundane, that's trivial. But in my mom's eyes, this was not trivial. This was a way for her to save money so that she wouldn't have to ask my father for more money so that she would have money to give to a missionary. Even clipping coupons to my mom had an eternal relationship aspect to it. And so I suggest that perhaps we ought to think a little higher than we sometimes do about the little decisions. I'm not suggesting we have to take every decision through that lens. But I think as we increase our thought time and, and our prayer time and our consideration of God, what God wants us to do, that might drive some of our, change, or some of our decisions, some of our thinking. And know this, if I make a bad decision, 
it doesn't mess up God's plan. So, so have I made bad decisions? Yes. Will I probably make some in the future? Absolutely. Here's the good news. We sang about it. He's sovereign. I can't, I can't mess up his long-range plan. I may disappoint him, and I need to go and confess my sins when I do, but I can't mess it up. He's in control. And because God is a loving Father, we can rest in His sovereignty for everything. God is in control over our circumstances. How do I know that? Well, Joseph understood it. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, when his brothers came to him thinking, we're going to get it from Joseph now that our father's dead. He's going to rightly want to do us in. And Joseph says, oh, wait a second. As for you, you meant evil towards me, but God meant it for good. To bring about what, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, Joseph said, God was in control of circumstances. Yes, you did a bad thing. It was evil, but God meant it for good. You can't frustrate God with your bad decisions. God is sovereign over our futures, past and, and our past. Isaiah 46.10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do that I please. God says, I got control of the past. I got control of the present. I got control of the future. Don't worry about it. In fact, that's why we shouldn't worry, because God's in control. God is sovereign over our decisions. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 say, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, he frustrates the plans of the peoples. No matter what we decide, he's not going to be frustrated. He doesn't say, ah, my plan got messed up. That guy Winquist, he just messed up a whole chain of events for me. No. He's in control even over the decisions I make. Or he, and he sure, certainly should be. I should want him to be. And God is sovereign even over our hearts. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I take comfort from that. I don't think, oh, that doesn't seem fair. I take comfort in knowing that God is even in control of my heart. And, it, and, and that's a good thing. I like what Paul Tripp says on the next slide. You are not living in the final chapter of the story. What is broken will be fixed. What has been bent will be straightened. And what has decayed will be restored. Eternity will give you a reason to continue. Be thankful and find joy, even when nothing right now seems as if it's working. Rejoice in COVID-19. Rejoice in afflictions. Rejoice in disease. I can speak from experience on several of those levels. And you can too. And we need to think with an eternal perspective when it comes to our time and our relationships. So the intimate relationship application on, on the next slide. What Jesus loves, I will love. But how can I know what he loves? Well, you already know the answer to that. You read his word. You see what he loved. You know what he loved? He loved sinners. That's his will. We love sinners. 
Jesus, his desire was that the, we would know the Father just as the Father and he knew each other. His desire is relationship. So seek relationship. Desire more relationship with him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and through 33 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now he's not doing things that are unholy, ungodly. But he's seeking in every circumstance to know his audience, to have an intimate relationship with his audience so that he can minister effectively to his audience. So just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That's, that's the vision of Jesus. That's the vision of Paul. And this is not loss, this is gain. This is surpassing gain. This is gain beyond all the rubbish that we think is so important. John Piper is a wise man. I generally like to see what he says about certain things. And this is what he says about glorification by satisfaction. We desire for God to receive the glory. And he should. And the good news is that that's actually for our good when we seek his glory. So they're not disconnected in any way, shape, or form. And here's what John Piper says. If you find your ultimate joy in your most cherished earthly treasure, you will be dis disappointed in the end, and I will be dishonored. Because I am offering myself to you as the all-satisfying beauty and the greatness and the wisdom and the strength and the love of the universe. Without measure, I am what you were made for. And I am telling you that if you see this, if you see me as your supreme treasure, then you won't have to choose between your satisfaction and my glorification. Because in the very act of your being most satisfied in me, I will be most glorified in you. So we, who are followers of Jesus Christ, he says, you can know me. And I want to know you. And I want you to know me better. And so we should make our decisions informed by that eternal perspective when it comes to the things that God has given us and the relationships that we have in our lives. He will receive the glory, and you will be more than satisfied in the process and in the end as well. To the praise of God, because he did it all, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. Let's pray. Father, all I can say, all I can think of is something that the pastors in India and their wives say to me every time we meet via Zoom. They always start by saying, praise the Lord. Jamasiki, Jamasiki, Jamasiki. Praise the Lord. Father, may the words 
of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And we thank you because of the shed blood of Christ and his broken body that we can have a relationship with you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.